Hey everyone, it's Dan here. This episode, which is part two of our chat with Michael Eisen, is brought to you by Cite.ai, which is a new tool that helps researchers quickly see how a paper has been cited and if it's been supported or disputed by subsequent research. Rather than just returning a list of paper titles, Cite.ai shows you an excerpt of text from each citing article so you can see exactly what the citing paper has written. As an Everything Hurts listener, you can get 30% off their premium package for 12 months, which gives you access to unlimited reports and reference checks. Use the coupon code HERTZ, H-E-R-T-Z, to get this offer. Check out the show notes for more details. So in case you haven't had the chance to hear part one of our chat in episode 122, our guest, Michael Eisen, is a biologist at UC Berkeley and editor-in-chief of eLife, a journal that's doing a bunch of innovative stuff in the scientific publishing space. He also co-founded PLOS, which was the first journal to popularize open access publishing in the biomedical sciences. In part two of this chat, we discuss the pros and cons of collaborative peer review, in which all peer reviewers discuss the paper together journal submission interfaces, Michael's take on James's proposal that peer reviewers should be paid $450 for their time, and why negative comments on peer reviews need to be normalized, plus much, much more. So without further ado, here is our chat with Michael. eLife adopts a relatively unique system, which I've participated in a few times myself and also been at the other end as an author in which the editor or handling editor and the reviewers collectively discuss the the, yeah. the paper after reviews are in. We mentioned this on the show before, but I wanted to ask you as the editor-in-chief, what do you see as the primary benefits of this system? Were you surprised? Uh, is there anything about it that's, that surprised you about how it's, how it's all been unfolding? Um. You know, I think I think the main benefit is that it. I think there's two main benefits. First of all, you know, peer reviewers get things wrong or they miss things. I mean, I think one of my first experiences with eLife was with a paper that I, as a reviewer, where I reviewed a paper, I found what I thought was a, and which ultimately was a like you know debilitating flaw in the work. You know, something that was like. A problem with the way the work was conceived of and executed that rendered their conclusions completely invalid. <laughs> I submitted my Familiar. review. <laughs> yeah, right. So this is this happens. I submitted my review, and then the three of us, the two other reviewers and me, as well as the editor, saw each other's reviews. The other two reviewers had reviewed the paper positively. And we had a discussion. I explained what my objection was, and they said, You're right. <laughs> That's that is a serious problem. I hadn't thought of that. This is this is this paper can't be published. So as a result, the message that was communicated to the authors was not there's two positive reviews and one cranky third reviewer who thinks the paper is invalid and right, which a lot of people would interpret as a positive outcome. Instead, what was communicated to the authors was, um, you know, th- this paper has to be rejected because it's wrong. Right. It's much clearer and it, it it's much better when the when the people who are doing reviews have a chance to explain to each other what's you know, what's going on. I've seen the opposite happen quite often, too, where there were two negative reviews where a third positive reviewer um, makes a case for why the paper is much more important than the than the other two reviewers thought. And the paper is accepted. So I think I think the I think mm. th- there is is, you know, what you're kind of looking for as a consumer of the scientific literature 
is somewhere in between the kind of eagle-eyed judgment of a keen scientist and some kind of reasoned consensus about their their judgments. And so when this system works well, which I think it does by and large work well, it gives you a more a more considered um, judgment than you get in in when you're just kind of weighing the 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 views of three reviewers against each other without without discussion. And I think you're starting to see other journals adopt this because I think it's you know, it's, it, it is it is a good system. And I think it it works well. You know, it isn't without its flaws. I mean, I think you do worry about about kind of groupthink and and, you know, if it's two against one, sometimes people will will kind of give in easily and and so forth. So in fact, in our current in our in our move to to online, you know, public peer review, we're kind of keeping bit bits of both of the, the system. There is that individual peer reviews will be posted but only after a discussion and the reviewers have had a chance to weigh the thoughts of other reviewers against their own findings. So they'll, you know, if they, if they wrote something and then the other reviewers convince them it's wrong, they can, they can reconsider their review, but you're still getting the kind of distinct Mm. views of individual reviewers. But when we go to the authors and say, we're making a decision because for now, in order to, deal with the reality that you have to pub- you still have to publish papers and still have to have journal titles on them to advance your careers as much as I think that should change right now it, it, it's a reality for all authors so we're still also in addition to publishing the reviews we're making a decision about whether or not to sort of put the e-life stamp on a paper when we do that when we go back to the authors it's with a very clear consensus this is what our judgment of the paper is here are the things you have to do to um, to if there are any things you have to do to make it into an e-life paper. This is not, you don't have to litigate the difference of opinions between different reviewers. We're giving you a single clear set of views. So I, I think yeah. this is, works reasonably well in most circumstances that, that you know, kind of, it also takes a little bit of the rougher edges off of peer review if you know that your colleagues are going to look at it and I think people are less, you know, peer reviews can be nasty sometimes and we really don't want that and like I think we want I think the fact that you know you're going to have a discussion with other peer reviewers gives, you know, at least some um, um, bias towards being constructive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think most most people who've written more than a couple of papers have been in a position where they've got two separate reviewer remarks, and one is redact that analysis completely, and the other yeah. one is what a great idea! You should exactly. expand that as much as possible. <laughs> exactly. And then you write back to the editor, dear editor, I have simultaneously expanded and removed. Um, yeah, no, you haven't. <laughs> right. uh, let me let, let me ask you a really specific question about when when you have let's say three reviewers, and they're returning their opinions. Do they turn up in the sequential order from which they're written and submitted, or is it like a Delphi <laughs> model where they all go in and then are all released at the same time? So, so are they blinded um, to the in terms of, of the, the other reviewers? The mechanics. I, if I'm reviewer number two, I can't see reviewer number one's review until. Okay. So, yeah. so the the way it works in a just you know behind the scenes kind of way is the reviews come in only after the all the reviews are in, then this conversation is triggered. I mean, you could make an argument for doing it in a different way, but I, you know, you don't like what we don't want is for reviewers to kind of read someone else's review and then write their review as a because it will be too influenced by it's good to have it's good to have that degree of independence at at the level of input, even if they then have a chance to kind of 
um, uh, litigate the, the differences between them as they go forward. So. I, I got into trouble for doing that at a Frontiers journal once. You, you, know, you know how they, they, they sometimes, you know, uh, the, the, the first person volunteers and, and they come in in whatever order they accept yeah. invitations. The first person comes in, the second person comes in, but no, they don't write anything and then they cancel and then they get the third person and then the third and those two agreements. And then so suddenly the fourth person turns up and I'm the fourth person and reviewer once had a bunch of shit. And I, I, I took exception to many of the things that they said and put that in my review. And the editor's like, you can't, you can't go reviewer one. You're not allowed to like start arguing on behalf of the authors because reviewer one's an idiot. Even if reviewer one's an idiot, you can't. We don't have the mechanics for you to say that. Right. Like I've got about ninety-seven references of why reviewer one is either like wrong or has a head injury. So I mean, I'm not incorrect about the assertions here. I promise you, I'm not. Yeah. But at the same time, there was no the like it. It was untoward. Like so many things in science, you know, you're not allowed to have that opinion because it's extremely inconvenient. And frankly, we haven't built the text box that requires you to have right, the communication right. properly. I mean, I mean, I, actually, uh, honestly, like, like I, one of the things that's been amazing to me is how much, as a journal, we're constrained by technology. So, uh, I, you know, here, like, like if I were, you know, just the whole process of, of, I mean, I think people in science know this, but just to remind you, like. Here's what happens when you send us a paper. You send us a paper. We se- it goes to staff who assign it to a deputy editor who assigns it to a senior editor. Sometimes we short circuit that step and the staff assign it to a senior editor. The senior editor looks at it. If it's not total, you know, bunk, they send it to a reviewing editor to ask their opinion of whether or not this, you know, should be a- even reviewed by eLife. If it's re- reviewed by eLife, it goes back to the authors who submit a final version who who then it goes to the reviewing editor who solicits peer reviewers by their own experience or some you know semi-automated system that tries to find peer reviewers none of this works very very efficiently the you know you have to ask often five or six peer reviewers to get the three you want and then one of those three is going to be delinquent and sending back the peer review so i've always wanted to do this differently i've always wanted to say Look, a paper comes in and 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 also just I'm sure you guys have reviewed papers. You know what this is like. Like, it, you know, when I get a request for review, it's not common that I have time right then to review the paper. So somehow I have to find time in the next 10 days or two weeks to review this paper. Meanwhile, nothing has happened. It's sitting stagnant in, 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 in the in the in the universe. Maybe one of the other reviewers is doing it. But there's this weird engineered delay which is basically just because journals have decided two weeks or 10 days is a reasonable amount of time. I would love to have, I've often felt this. Obviously, this isn't happening now, but it used to happen that I'd be getting on a flight to Frankfurt. I have 10 hours. I'm going to sleep for two. And then I'm just going to be sitting there watching some dumb Hugh Grant movie for the rest of the time. (laughs) And, and, and what I, you know, trying to do some real serious work or something, but like, It'd be great if I could say, hey, I'm getting on a flight. I have eight hours of uninterrupted time. Give me two papers to review right now. I don't care. I don't, they don't have to be the perfect papers. They don't have to be one you invited me to. Just give me the two papers that I'm in the best position to review right now. I think it'd be so much better if we had a system where you're, you kind of agree to review papers and that you review papers at, at when you have time to review them. Right. And, Mm. and that, so it could be possible. If like, you know, that that paper just got submitted and now I'm reviewing it six hours later and it would be so much more efficient way of doing it. 
it's almost impossible to get this to happen because the software and technology that we use is just so like it so embeds a, a, a traditional way of dealing with publishing. And, you know, we've tried at both Plus and at eLife to kind of rewrite software to handle that stuff. And it's it's really hard to get it right and to deal with all the weird idiosyncrasies of 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 the universe. And so I, I you know, a lot of these things like it's frustrating when a journal says we can't do that because we don't have the checkbox. But I tell you, it it takes a lot for us to get a checkbox added to our system. You know, we oh. didn't write it. It's like, you know, it's it's. Uh, so it's all okay. people people in this building who 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 build our software who frequently tell me that I can't have checkbox in the the the, the right, right the right location. You should try hardware engineering. You're told you can't have anything at all. Bloody yeah. hell! Um, but that, <laughs> it's just an that, interesting. That being it's, said, yeah. that being said, there are obviously some. L- let me put it this way: some journal interfaces, if they were SaaS companies, would be like bankrupt and sleeping in a cardboard box in a year. Right. Yes. And should and should be, yeah, they should. Because <laughs> the, the 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 alleged service, obviously, you you get you really get the impression that you're not a customer when you go through some of these things. My interests are not being served here, yeah, because this is tremendously inefficient and annoying and sometimes deeply pointless. I do not feel like I am a customer because yeah, I, I am not agree. having any needs that I have well, met. I- and I'll tell you why, like to, to some extent, it, it, and this is something I've seen repeatedly, it's because the customer is the editor. Yeah. Right. And even then, it's not necessarily a great system for the editors. But like, you know, when we when we went through a software development exercise with PLOS, and again, like I think part of the problem has always been, you know, PLOS was not a software shop. And trying to take an editorial shop and, and produce software was kind of, it, it, it was, 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 did not end up. Right. We did like people at Plus produce a lot of really useful, great software, but not these kind of big systems kind of things that have to work in the way that that publishing systems work. And and so I think one of the things that happens is you sketch out a system that's designed to make the author experience really good. And then but you don't have a lot of authors in the office. You have a lot of editors. And so you start talking to the editors who also have a lot of pain points and they're, you know, you know, they're the ones who are spending all day in the system, who their jobs are to interact with the system. It makes sense to tailor it, you know, to make sure it works for them. But just simply the, 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 the asymmetry between the amount of input editors had into the software and the amount of time authors have was, is huge. And also, you know, for all the complaining everybody does about submission systems for journals, I very rarely heard someone say, I'm not sending a paper to nature because their submission system sucks, right? Like the the incentive system is, is, the incentive system is such that you will, you will, if, if, if nature said to an author, right, that what you have to do is print it out and, you know, uh, cover your body with honey and feathers and then, you know, run down the street with your paper attached to your body, people would do it because again, the incentives are so, Right. The, yep. the, 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 there's such a the industry takes advantage of the fact that that that, that authors uh, that that there isn't really choice in the classical sense. Like your choice as an author is really to figure out what pa- what journal is you can get your paper into that's going to advance your career in the best way you can. Most people quite understandably are motivated primarily by that. And so 
if it happens to be that the journal submission system for the right journals is terrible, they'll complain about it, but it won't actually lead to them not being a customer. And in order for it to actually have an impact on the industry, it has to actually lead to to, to loss of customers. And I, I just don't yeah. think that it happens. And grants are even worse. Oh, yeah. Because, like, what are you, what are you going to do? It's like, well, yeah. I'm not asking you for $1.2 million because of your yeah. horrible web portal, National <laughs> exactly. Science Foundation, said literally no one ever. That's right. Like, I mean, you know, three quarters of the conversations you have at the bar at a meeting with people are about how terrible <laughs> the systems are, maybe. But, like, so everybody hates it, but but nobody's incentivized to make it work better. So it's, Speak- it's weird, but... Speaking of incentives and getting back reviews faster, one thing that's been spoken about a lot on the internet, including by our friend James here, is paying reviewers. What are your thoughts, Michael, about this idea of paying reviewers to perform peer review? I, I have a very mixed minds about it. I mean, here there's a lot of competing interests here. First of all, mm. by and large, reviewers are already paid, right? Like, like most reviewers are reviewing papers as part of their, as part of their job, right? Like, you know, um, I, you know, when I review a paper, it's because part of my expectation as a scientist is to review papers. So in some sense, they are already paid. Okay. Um, so I, I think there's that. I, I, I tried just recently online to estimate like how much would it cost to pay reviewers if you professionalized it or paid them a legitimate, it is probably somewhere around a billion dollars um, of kind of labor is given by peer reviewers collectively across the industry. Right now, that's one of these forms of subsidy, right? The funders pay their, you know, funders and universities pay their salaries, then they do peer review. They're basically subsidizing the industry by paying these people's salaries. But the fact that it is not kind of that the the, the contract between the publisher and the reviewer is a weird one in the sense that the reviewers don't think of this as work in essence. They think of themselves as volunteers, right? And and they are, right? From the standpoint of that interaction, the journal isn't really paying you. Not, not really. The journal is not paying you at all. So we're kind of depending on your goodwill and commitment to, you know, and just your personal interactions, you know. Everybody knows it's way easier to get someone to send you a review if you call them or send them an email from a human rather than have an automated system remind them because nobody feels any fealty to automated systems. But, you know, they feel some commitment to the reviewers to not like the paper, sit, I mean, to the authors to not make the paper sit around all the time. So what happens if you pay them? Okay. I mean, I agree that it's, in some sense, it would be a good thing, right? A lot of people who put their time into the system are poorly paid to start with, right? You know, they're, they're sometimes it's students or trainees of other forms who are actually doing peer review, and they're, you know, what, meanwhile, their PI is getting paid to do it while they're actually doing it, right? There's mm-hmm. there's some, right? Okay, so I, I, I think there's an element of fairness to doing it. But I also worry about this, the phenomenon that, that if you're paying people to peer review, now you lose the, like, if the primary motivation for someone to do peer review is commitment to the community, I'm not sure how you put an adequate price on that to get people to actually do it like you know what would it cost if someone's just if someone like i'll tell you the answer like i get asked to peer review things that are like internal documents for published like a book pitch or a an industry document 
I, I, I don't do those. I don't have the time. Like occasionally if someone said, I'll pay you $10,000 to do it, maybe I'd listen, but I don't even mm. do that. Like, but, right. Like you have, like you have to pay people a lot of money to get them to say, I'm going to spend four or five hours thinking about a paper I wouldn't otherwise read. And, and, and give you my feedback on it. And if you're paying me now, I feel more responsible to like, right. I don't know. I, I, I worry that it, that there's an alchemy involved in peer review that, that we would disrupt by commodifying it. And oh, yeah, yeah look, that's a, so, that's a, that's probably the best formulation of the counter argument that I've heard that there's a, an alchemy and a social contract that you could potentially disrupt. I, 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 I like that as a position. Um, I mean, I should I, say I am mindful that alchemy doesn't, doesn't feed people. So like for people for like, it yeah. is, there is an element of, right. I mean, I, like, you know, I, I remember I, I was, a, a, when I was an undergraduate, there was a, 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 a strike, a, you know, a, a strike for the cafeteria workers and, and, and other poorly paid workers at my university. And, and you know the university Harvard kind of came, was that Harvard? Yeah, this was Harvard. So. Oh, they've had they've had more strikes there since then. I'm sure there's t- tons yeah. of happened, but the university like came back to them and basically said, "How dare you strike? You have the privilege of working at Harvard." And the people responded, <laughs> "You know, you know, prestige doesn't doesn't feed me, right? Like basically, like like I, I, and so I am conscious of the fact that say that that in my saying so." What I'm basically justifying is people providing a billion dollars worth of free labor to to this industry. So I, I I do think it's worth thinking about whether the people who are actually doing the work in this industry are being fairly compensated for it. I certainly think the fact that you have all these peer these people out there who are doing the actual work of peer review. Let's just say it's a I, I mean it, the way I came up with this calculation is five. There's five. There's two million papers. Let's say on average each one gets reviewed two and a half times by two and a half reviews. I, that's probably a low that's estimate, right. but whatever. So that gives you five million review events. If each one takes four hours on a, roughly to do well, so each person's doing two two reviews a day in a typical work day. And if you if you if you push that all out and say they do that for 250 days a year, and let's say we pay them a hundred thousand dollars a year fully loaded salary, which I realize is high, but like. But like just trying to ballpark it, then then you end up with an estimate of around a billion dollars a year in in expenditures on peer review. So let's say it's five hundred million, whatever, if you if you slash that price. But we're still talking about somewhere between say five hundred million and a billion dollars of of labor that is contributed without compensation to the publishing system. That number happens to be less than what Elsevier's profit was in this industry last year. So if you ask yourself the question. Would I rather every peer reviewer be paid of uh you know for their time, or would I rather you know several billion dollars worth of federal you know and and foundation funds be leached off to go to exorbitant profits for publishers? I would way rather that money went to peer reviewers. So I, I think that it's I'm not I I, I think if a fair in if especially when those people aren't really actually already being paid for their for their labor. By, you know, like I paid for my time quite reasonably well. So if I peer review something, I don't feel like I'm, I'm, you know, I'm being gypped. But, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who are participating in peer review who have low salaries and are actually, you know, choosing to peer, you know, doing peer review at the expense of other parts of their job 
that they could do. So I think that one possible solution to this is to be much more explicit about the fact that your peer review effort is subsidizing, you, you know, that if you're, that there needs to be a way to make sure that you are credited at the very least for your, for your efforts. And this is, this is, uh, you know, something the industry really just hasn't, hasn't really done a great job of. There are these nascent efforts like pub lawns and other things who are, who are, you know, geared at trying to give you credit for, for your reviews. But that, that, that is certainly not kind of in, in, in enmeshed itself into the, into the culture of compensation. No, do, 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 do you want to, do you want to know something fun? While I was busy a few months ago, making a big fuss about getting uh, paid to peer review and enjoying my new foray into the, uh, the capitalist landscape, um, at which point the irony being at like at the exact point in time where it's, it's really definitely not my job anymore. It's the first one it's a point in my whole life where I definitely don't need the fucking money. I mean, right. this is, I'm, I'm thinking about all of the adjuncts and grad students that you mentioned who could, who Absolutely. could really use the money for fucking run and rent um that's so here's here's just a proposal i want to tell you this because it's fucking hilarious um while i was coming up with that i did two peer reviews for nothing (laughs) for community and open journals it's like i didn't i didn't have the heart to tell people it's like well i I didn't i didn't want people to go well you're hardly standing behind this are you but I, i don't think anyone would say well your scientific society that's run on a shoestring uh give us cash uh your your nascent journal in the area that uh it doesn't have any support or focus right now. Give us cash. Your overlay journal that you run for essentially nothing. Um, I've, I've never heard anyone go, okay, well, I don't want to be uh, doing that for free because everyone accepts that those community endeavors are part of community building. Yeah. And even as now my allegedly avowed capitalist state, I still do them. I like quietly a lot of the time. You don't have to tell everyone everything, but you still do that stuff. Yeah. Um, it's just the, the, the reason that I like it best of all is simply because it is – there's very few – I was complaining about this yesterday. There's only very few actionable things that you can do when you're allegedly youngish um, and someone who has a $2.3 billion uh, gross revenue after tax says, can you do this? Like, the only like, cheeky thing that you can do that's even vaguely annoying that's going to pay, make them pay attention is go, yeah, here you go, pay me. At some point in time, Michael, someone will get one of my contracts and they will send it to accounts receivable and then they will actually owe me money and then I will <laughs> laugh for a year. Yeah. Um, and I'm very much looking forward to that in particular. Can, can I yeah, tell you an ironic, an ironic aspect of this? In fact, we were just having a conversation about this this morning, which is, um, you know, who owns peer reviews? Right? Like, like, like when you send a peer review to a journal, who, who owns it? This oddly, this question has never really been been um, been dealt with properly. It's it, in the sense we run into this several times. So so we have gotten it, it came up in this in the in this context, which is someone sends a journal a paper to Cell. Cell rejects the paper but sends them the reviews. Okay, so they come to us with the reviews that they got from Cell, mm. and we read them and say, we'll accept this paper based on these reviews. Now, at eLife, we publish the decision letters we send to authors, including the peer reviews. We always have. They're part of every paper is the decision letter. 
So what do we do in this case? We didn't commission those peer reviews. We got them from the authors. The journal refuses to give us permission to use them because it's Elsevier. And um, and so we had to face make a decision about who who owns those peer reviews and do we have the right to publish them? Now, uh, uh, you, you know, I think I, in that case, I could make an argument that the author owns them because the triggering event for the the triggering event was the author sent a paper for, to the journal. The journal agreed to peer review it and sent them back the peer reviews with no with no um, with no constraints. But technically, the copyright on those peer reviews belongs to the reviewers. Nobody's ever signed a contract that says I assign copyright in my peer review to you as a as a as a publisher. So now, you know, I, I, I talked to some lawyers who said this is this is if this isn't fair use, I don't know what is. So we were the the mm. I think in that case, it was covered by 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 fair use. But I do think this question of what is the like, who who owns peer reviews, right? Like, is it the authors who commission them? Is it the the reviewers who are commissioned to do them? But the point the point is the the fact that actually most journals would argue they own them. Yes, I would. Because they commissioned the reviewers to do them. But the fact that they don't pay them for commissioned work actually makes their position um, uh, somewhat less less tenable, <laughs> right? Like they can't argue that the reviewers did this under under contract because there's there's at best an implied contract and there's certainly no payment for their for their copyright. So I think that publishers want to have it both ways. They want they want these works to be you know peer reviews to be done for free as part of a you know, commitment to the community and yet not belong to the community. And I think that you cannot ask both things of a of a person. If you're participating in something that is a community endeavor, then what you produce should belong to the community. And I think that that this is one of the things, one of the ideas we're trying to inculcate in the world is that when you do peer review, it, it, you know, you shouldn't be doing it for service to a journal. You should be doing it for for science. And And the best way to to actually reward you as a reviewer is to make your work public and to have it have an influence on the science you're commenting on and so forth, not just because it allows some journal to decide whether or not the paper is going to be profitable for them to publish. So I think it's, it, yeah, I think, I think we're in, heading into interesting territory here in trying to think about like, you know, what do reviewers get out of participating in peer review? What should they get and so forth? If it was a simple matter of like, okay, let's say every peer review is a community object and everyone gets access to it and everyone gets to read it and my name goes on the top because uh, I, I wrote it and it's a it's my contribution to the scientific process. Now everyone gets to see that. Well, you've suddenly made that very much an, in, an inherently community-supporting activity. Yeah. It's, it's, you can, every, everyone can see it now. Um, I can refer to it elsewhere. When, when I have to do another peer review, I don't have to write it all out from scratch. Right. No, absolutely. Michael, Dan and I, once, we, we review a lot of papers on, uh, on biosignals. We have to make the same comments so many separate times and so many separate different things. We considered making like a, like a Mad Libs kind of dashboard. Oh, absolutely. Where all awesome. you'd have yeah. to do would, would type in like 1, 17, 23, and 46 and push enter and it would auto populate the review it's, with you everything know, that you'd said before. We had an intern at eLife who was like a, a, like a summer, 
a summer data science person. And one of the things I thought about asking them was, can you distill from peer reviews a kind of like, you know, like set of commonly said things that you could just, you know, you almost exactly like that. They're like menu items in a, in a, <laughs> um, in a, in a peer review. And I, I think, I think, I think it's true. A lot of what you think when you're reviewing a paper is fairly, you know, repetitive stuff like about, you know, how you should do certain types of experiments or what type of data you need to answer certain conclusions. I don't think it's totally, totally bonkers to, to, to actually imagine some of that happening. One thing I want to comment on with, with relative to that though is, um, is this question of, so, so if you had that world, which I totally see the appeal of where peer review is actually a public, you know, something you do for the public, partly you put your reputation behind your peer reviews and so forth. We have a problem in that there are a lot of people who don't feel comfortable criticizing colleagues work because, you know, the person they're criticizing is gonna influence their career and, and, yeah. and judge their job. So I think there's a question that I don't have a great answer to, which is, you know, how do we balance the value you get from full transparency and peer review where everybody's name is attached to their peer reviews, where you know who wrote it, you can build up a body of peer reviews and so forth against the fact that the vast majority of, of people don't want to sign their names to their peer reviews for not because it's, it's not because it's, it's sort of inconvenient or they're not used to it, but because they actually worry that if they do so, they will be penalized for it. And so I've tried to think about like, maybe everybody is actually every peer review is actually, you know, just has a has a uh, some kind of um, key associated with it. And if the author wants to tell someone else that they wrote this peer review, they always can, but that you give some <laughs> kind of right, because I think like, oh, what does a journal cute. do? PGP, pretty good. Peer exactly. Review. Exactly. I mean, what does a journal do? Right? We we like, you know, Nobody wants fully anonymous peer review on the internet where you can just say whatever you want to without any consequences. That's a disaster. But I think also we can't have fully transparent peer review for all the reasons that I just discussed. So mm. this is in some ways what journals do, right? We provide a degree of, we provide authenticated anonymity. Y you know, you don't know who this person is, so you don't know whether to trust them, but we know who that person is and you trust us, so you trust them by proxy. And I, I do wonder if there's some way to be more explicit about what's going on there. You know, why do we trust this person? What can we say about about why we think they're an appropriate reviewer? Is there some way of kind of staking out a middle ground where people don't have to reveal their identities, but at the same time, you can you can you can communicate why it is that they should have confidence to who this person is. Like many researchers, Google Scholar is my first port of call when I'm looking for papers. But the issue with Google Scholar is that it places a high premium on the raw number of citations when it comes to its search rankings. This is a big problem though, because not all citations are equal. What if many of these citations were disputing the original paper or just mentioning the paper in passing? Of course, you could read each of these citing papers, but that would take a lot of time. Fortunately, Cite.ai can do all this for you almost instantly. Utilizing deep learning, Cite can show you at a glance how a paper has been cited, and specifically if it's been supported, disputed, or merely mentioned. Cite.ai also shows the context of the citation from each paper. 
You can plug in a single paper or even a whole reference list, which is really handy for when you're reviewing or writing the paper. I recently installed their free browser plugin so that you can exactly see how a paper has been cited directly in Google Scholar or PubMed, Nature, eLife, and several other academic publishers. So check out the browser plugin. Have a look at Cite.ai for yourself, where you can generate five reports a month for free, which includes the context for each citation. If you want access to unlimited reports and reference checks, Cite.ai is offering 30% off their premium package for 12 months for Everything Hurts listeners. Just use the coupon code HURTS. That's H-E-R-T-Z. For more details, check out the show notes. I heard a very unusual take that I've never heard before. We had a discussion about this in our last podcast episode and we we're talking about, well, even if you're not going to sign your reviews, there still is a ton of value in, in publishing unsigned peer review requests. And then there was a bunch of people who jumped in my timeline, all from physics, strangely enough, who said, oh, I would not contribute to a journal that had um, even unsigned transparent reviews because I would be worried that a single bad comment would follow around a young author and potentially bite him in the ass a few years later. Um, I had not considered this, and I think that's a little bit of a stretch, and it was the first time I've actually heard this. But do, do you think this is legit at all, the fact that uh, a small comment done on a transparent peer review in, in, in 10 years' time, someone's going to go, oh, look, look at this one limitation in your paper? I, I think I think it is probably... Uh, you know, real fear, but uncommon. I mean, I do think you've seen, like, for example, if somebody writes about your paper on PubPeer and says it's got, there's fraud involved, right? Which they, you know, I'll say they're pretty careful about what they, you know, what they, what they post and things like that. But, but that can follow you around and dog you if you're, you know, especially if you're, you know, if you've got someone who want, like, who wants to make a deal out of it, right? Like, you know, there are, there are, there are, you know, Twitter trolls who will follow scientists around and say, you know, I mean, sometimes legitimately, I'm not like some of these, a lot of the, you know, I would say that by and large, when we get accusations of, of problems on pub beer and we investigate them, they're right. Like it's not so like, it's just, I just do think that there, there is a legitimate fear that I, I think that people have not because it happens often, but because it could happen that, that a single, um, you know, really harshly critical peer review could follow you around for, for quite some time. So I do think it's a hard thing for us to like, like right now you can run away from criticism, right? Like you just go to another journal and it's just like lost. Right. And so, in fact, we've tried to think about how to balance these two things in e-life, which is, you know, um, um, when you submit from now on, when you submit to eLife, you know, not only are we producing public reviews, but we are committing to publish those public reviews, your paper. However, if we reject your paper on the basis of those public reviews, we will not publish them until your pay, if, unless, if you don't want us to, until your paper is published somewhere else, but we will publish them. So the idea is that you know, what do you care most about as an author is getting your work published. If we don't want, if we decline to be the person who publishes it, we don't want to be responsible for your work not getting published anywhere if we made a mistake in our peer review or something like that. But at the same time, we don't want you to feel like the criticisms raised by our reviewers are are going to be invisible forever. So we do want those, 
you know, to, to, to be public so that you feel some, you know, you feel compelled to address them, even if you don't literally address them to the next, in, a, in an overt sense to the next journal, it'll improve your paper and, and we, we hope reflect it that way. But this, I, I, I don't know. Like, I think, I think every time I've been like, that can't happen. The, you know, people aren't that, that bad. The internet proves me wrong. So I think I think that there are there is, the I internet. Think, there's there's plenty of highly successful scientific sociopaths and assholes. Yes. Um, they, they, yeah, they, they absolutely will make a big deal out of it. Some of them would enjoy yeah. it quite a lot. Yeah. So the question is, is there you know, I, I do think that that some of the problem just comes from lack of, like right now, I think it would be much worse. It's much worse to have um, you know, public criticism of your paper because we just haven't normalized that. I think that the more and more like we see that every paper, some part, like every, I've never seen a paper that didn't have some, you know, some suggestion or criticism in the peer review, right? Yeah. And so I think the more that people see that like every paper, the, you know, is a balance, you know, between people saying things that they like about it and things that they, they criticism. Once that becomes more normalized and people are aware that it's not just their paper that was trashed by reviewer number three, but every paper that, that I think then the damage that could accrue to you by having, you know, um, somebody having criticized something about your paper starts to be minimized. And I think that people, right. It's just like, like early days of Twitter. It was really bad to be to be called out for, you know, some bad, like right nowadays, like it's just lost in the noise. Like someone, you know, I have trolls who follow me around and like say b- bad things about me, but like, who cares? Like they're like, it's just because everybody knows there's trolls. Right. So, so like, it's just sort of disappears into the, I, I kind of feel like we might get that to point with, 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 with peer review that like, it's, you know, everybody knows that there's sometimes jobs who say weird things about your work and it's just not going to sink your career yeah, yeah. No, i think Pretty it's much. i think it's very valuable <laughs> especially in terms of um uh, just just showing graduate students and, and undergraduate students this is how the process works people see papers and they're like oh you submitted and magically it's accepted no that's not the way we, we think that's ridiculous because we know the reality but actually showing graduate students no this is how a paper is reviewed i think can be uh, can be very valuable yeah and i i i think you know, that was part of the motivation when eLife was launched to publish the peer reviews along with the papers, sort of transparency and kind of education. I don't think it's, I don't think still people take advantage of that enough. Like, you, you know, like I, I think we should have classes that are just, you know, looking at peer reviews of papers and trying to understand them. I mean, I think people are very quick, you know, actually, I, I, I you saw this in a weird, in kind of a weird te- context recently, which was you saw that paper, which argued that that women should have male mentors right okay like a paper was uh, a couple of, couple of weeks ago uh, yeah, yeah like in NH- okay. yes um no, it was nature no comes. it was in nature uh um nature, nature communications nature yeah. yeah okay yeah it was nature yeah, communications yeah, yeah. okay yeah, so we'll talk about the same okay thing. so all sorts of things you could criticize about the paper and i, I like especially their kind of pol- political conclusions so um but i was noteworthy like that one of the things people grabbed onto was that they the nature communications published the peer reviews for the paper and people grabbed onto it and said, Oh, look, the peer reviews were critical as if somehow that was, uh, 
damning statement about the paper. I was just like, okay, like there's lots of things to say about this work and lots of criticism to raise about it. But the fact that they had negative peer review comments is not one of them. Like this is this is not. And I think that the reason that you could get away with saying that was that for many people, this was the first time that they'd looked at peer reviews of a published paper of any paper. And and that, you know, for them to see two reviewers saying, you know, quite justifiably critical things about the paper um, um, was damning. Whereas, in fact, what had happened was the authors responded to those comments. And again, like I'm not defending the paper. I think it was it was it was bad in all all manner of ways. But, you know, the fact that peer reviewers criticized it and the authors responded, that's not a that's not a flaw. That's a that's a positive. It's a huge so, positive. Yeah. So and the, and and you can think that maybe they didn't do it successfully. And that's, you know, I think in this case, several of the criticisms were left unanswered. So that's a that's a mm. legitimate complaint. Yeah, but the fact that it was negatively credit negatively reviewed at first blush is not is not the kind of damning indictment that people seem to think it is because all papers are like that. Yeah, uh, we've uh, we've all, I'm sure, had the experience of the the fact where you've you've really laid the slam down on something that you've had to review, and the authors pop back up in a week going, "What an invigorating process! I've changed exactly. about eighty seven <laughs> things, and bloody hell, that was useful." And by the time you're done with that project when, when it's actually engaging i mean it warms my cold black heart when things like that happen because you can you can see things make such a shift um and if someone just saw the initial reviews that you returned on something like that you would get a very colored perspective on what happened to that work yeah um but I, the leaving think- criticisms on the table part is obviously, I think that's most people the jumping off point when you say, well, this didn't work properly. And for some reason, it uh, it made it through the process and out the other side without that ever really being addressed. There's definitely not, it is a definitely highly inefficient process. And I think that oh, yeah. definitely papers make it through that shouldn't have been published. And, you know, but, and, and I, honestly, like, I hope that one of the things we get by being more open with peer review is that people are, more, um, you know, I, I think that that they're better at articulating, like what parts of a paper stand fine, you know, given the way the paper was written, and what parts don't. Like, like I think, you know, very often the paper as a whole is fine. It's just like two sentences in the conclusions that the authors are trying to push as the message are wrong, and mm. that's a very different criticism of a paper than. You know, still we would reject it because if the conclusions are what makes the paper interesting, then fine. But there's, uh, you know, the alternative is where, um, you know, uh, um, you know, basically every every experiment is 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 done poorly and invalid. I mean, I've I've I've, po- you know, I've run into papers in Nature where I literally think every single thing that they said in the paper was wrong, and that's a very different review than. Um, you know, your data don't quite reach to the same conclusions. And yet in the current system, both both those papers should be rejected and and leave the, they essentially leave the same trail. Whereas in fact, you know, it's quite different. There's a very different types of assessment of papers that we don't quite know how to capture at the moment. So. Mm, yeah, this is one of the, the problems with the binary decision. Um, I've, I've felt terrible previously, especially when you get sort of lower middle income country papers so turn up the 
linguistic sophistication, all the curlicues that you're used to. I've had especially um, papers from Eastern Europe for me because of the sort of tradition within the cardiovascular sort of milieu in general. Paper turns up, I look at the experiment and think, actually, you know what, that's not a bad experiment. I quite like that. That observation doesn't exist anywhere else. I have curiosity and everything that's hung off the back of that leaves you with this weird quandary of, well, I can't say great experiment, shame about the paper. Um, yeah. I'm technically reviewing the paper. Yeah. Um, but I would really like to see this see the light of day because like, at some point in time in six months, I'm going to go, oh, I need to refer to that because that, that result yeah. is important for I, me to know. What the hell I are you supposed to do? I can think of papers exactly like that where like there is just an unbelievably useful piece of data within the paper and yet and yet the paper as a whole is just, you know, not useful. It's like they, they, they were going after some other problem and they didn't really answer the question they were trying to answer, but they think they did. And so the paper as a whole is a mess. And yet sitting in the middle of it is just this incredible experiment, which is, and, and you know, like the challenge of balancing, like, how do I, how do I convey that, that they, you know, uh, that the fact that this piece of data in this paper is incredibly useful and interesting, even though the authors may not even realized how it was, how useful it was. And yet at the same time, this paper, the conclusions of this paper are not justified by their data. That is a nuanced decision that has no rendering in the current, in the yeah. current publishing world. And Completely. so I'd like to be able to do that, to have that, to have that be the outcome. And maybe the authors are fine with that. They're like, okay. I mean, that's that's just what it is. That's my judgment of the paper. I don't have to put it into a bin. I don't have to decide it goes in this journal or that journal to render that judgment because the judgment is a complex, a complex one that that you can't you cannot you cannot render in a binary fashion. And maybe you don't want to, like, have them go off and rewrite another paper that wraps around this other piece of data, because what's the point? They've already done it. It's like, why waste their why waste their time and everybody's time kind of jumping through a hoop just to make this one piece of data publishable when in fact, you know, it's sitting there, you can, you can annotate it properly. Anyway, yeah, it's complicated. Maybe, maybe, maybe we should have a Mad Libs kind of paper where the paper itself, like you get to write your own introduction, but what's given to you is everything that goes through the method of results. And you get, you get to annotate and write your own introduction and discussion to the paper. Yeah. And I'll say one, I, I realize we're kind of probably well past time. You guys are awake, but I'll, I'll, uh, I'll make one other just future thing, which is I, I really have talked about it. And I think we will do at eLife once we get blast through this current set of changes is I'd like to give like a author safe space in every paper. That is like a part of the paper, which is you can basically say whatever you want. It's tagged as that. Like, we're not going to review it. This is pure author speculation. If you, you know, and everybody should receive it as such. I don't want to see a press release coming out saying that this paper proved this, but like we, we tend to not give a lot of free reign to authors to, to speculate on the, meaning of their work in a in a way that that may not be warranted but is interesting to read and i think i think trying to give trying to if you get away from the idea that when we peer review a paper we're putting a stamp of validity on the entire work not just on individual pieces of it or on on pieces of data that that maybe it's okay for an author to to kind of 
to see what the author's wild speculation is, even if it's totally unhinged relative to the to the manuscript in front of them. I think that's fun. That's a great yeah. idea. <laughs> I, I, I love that um, because the, 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 when, when it's marked as that, when you can come exactly. at it. I mean, also, you, you, you're offering them something else. You're offering the, the ability to speculate, to be excited. Free hit. Um, to, to draw exactly. parallels that might not necessarily be there, to give other people ideas. I don't know about this, but shit, you should try it. Have a go. Exactly. See what happens. Here are some experiments we thought about doing but didn't do, and now the students left. And they're, ne- they're never going to get done. But I think it would be really cool to do. Like things like that, which happens all the time with me. Like, it's yeah, like of course. you know, like projects are are associated with people. And when they're gone, the, the, the experiments stop. Uh, not always, but often. And so I think trying to kind of like give, give authors less of, to ha- make the whole process less constrained by the need to render publishing decisions and more about, about you know their what they're trying to do i think would be great obviously it's fun as hell great i want to i want to write one right now except i don't have any papers anymore (laughs) (laughs) i hope uh i hope that sees a lot of days soon we have um gone over time, but uh, it's just going to have to be a two-parter. Flown. Yeah, we're, we're going to split this into, into two episodes. It's going to be great. You, you, no, do whatever. You, yeah, we're going to split you, it into two you, episodes. You're just you're just too good at this. You, you've <laughs> ruined you've ruined the one part structure. It turns out we need a whole new publishing structure for this episode. Exactly. That's what that's my goal in life. There's the there's the peer reviewed part of this conversation and the. Uh, the wild author speculation part of this. Oh, part two. Hell yeah. <laughs> Michael, thank you so much for your time. Um, we will post um, links to your social media profiles and your website um, on our show notes so people can uh, awesome. can follow you they wherever you where are on me. the internet. Um, but, uh, yeah, thanks for your time. That was a pleasure. I look forward to hearing it. And please uh, feel free to, to have me back if you have other stuff you want to talk about. So. We'd love that. See oh. you later. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. I didn't even get to ask you about Congress. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, that's good. We'll, we'll save that till I actually win. cheers i love it see you guys see you later